0: The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. If you have a Bible, go to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 2, what a great song, Who who Am I? I hope that we can all say that we're God's children this morning. Just in my time of talking to some of you before the service, uh, it's evident that you're His children based on what God has done for you. We know through Scripture that God loves to show Himself strong on behalf of His children. And there are many of you that are walking miracles. I mean, the fact that you're even here this morning, based on some of the things that I know you've gone through physically, and man, it's just incredible to see God working on behalf of His children. And uh, what a testimony that we could have as a church for that. 1 Peter chapter 2, if you're there, keep digging your way there. If you have a phone, please go there if that's the way that you have God's Word in front of you. We've been on a journey on this sermon series titled, Hope which will change the name of the sermon series shortly, but we will continue going through the book of 1 Peter. We titled it Hope because we learned early on that the book of 1 Peter was basically God's letter of love and hope to his suffering children years ago under the Roman persecution of Christians. And, and we learned some great things. We learned that God was wanting his children to know back then and now that we're his, that our identity is found in Christ uh, we learned that he wanted his children to know that they were redeemed with precious blood. To not forget the cross and the resurrection and all of life's difficulties and happenings. Don't forget the precious blood that redeemed you. We learned also that Christians, that being hopeful in God and having hope in any life circumstance, were to love each other passionately. Hey, Don, I didn't even see you this morning. Good to see you, my friend glad that you're here man my heart is just so full this morning i can't even tell you and uh, we also learn that uh, we're supposed to love god's word we love him the love that he has for us is supposed to just reflect everywhere in our lives and and i love that our church does that it reflects in the way that we're giving in the way that we care about kids around the world that are going to receive these shoe boxes that we just sent out last week and the families this week that will enjoy the food that we purchase for them, we ought to care about those things because the love that God has shown us ought to just reflect everywhere. This week, First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we learn again that God wants His children to know, to know that their identity is in Him. And anytime Scripture repeats itself, anytime God repeats Himself, that's a good time to perk your ears and listen up because whatever God is saying is probably something of great importance. God wanted to clarify with His children who their identity was in and what their own identity was. Because the same identity crisis that Christians have today in the form of coming to a body of believers and not really knowing for sure who's the real Christian and who's not, there's a reason that Christians sometimes have a a, a stereotype with them that says that they're gossipers and backbiters, and the reason this is because those people aren't really Christians. They're among Christians, and they may look like them and do some of the things that they do, but they're not truly redeemed of God. And that's why those bad negative stereotypes and things that we're known for sometimes come about. And it's an issue. And it was an issue all the years ago that that when God was speaking these words and he was using Peter to write this book as a message of hope and love to his children. And again, it was as true then as it is now, but it was a problem then too. You see, under the great Roman persecution of Christians... They, you could be imprisoned just for carrying a copy of God's Word, a copy of the Old Testament, or praying, if you were saying praying in Jesus' name, and, or gathering together with other believers, you could be thrown in prison. And what some of the Roman authorities would do is they would, they'd make this ultimatum. They would say, we've got this group of Christians, and they would say, if you denounce Christ, we'll let you go. If you refuse to denounce Christ, you'll be beheaded in the next five minutes. And there would be these groups of people that everyone else thought in the local congregation of the local assembly, everybody else thought that they were true believers. But it turned out that many of them, not all, but many of them denounced Christ. And and they they were phonies. They They weren't the real thing. So this issue of identity was important back then and it's important today as well. I'd like to start with this first statement. And I usually don't do this before getting to God's Word, but I'd like to start with this presupposition, if you will, and I think it's going to help outline the rest of today's sermon. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these words down. Who you are determines how you do life. Who you are determines how you do life. The last I checked, neurosurgeons do not perform brain surgeries with backhoes. Wouldn't that be a sight? Uh, Construction workers who are excavators don't move dirt with scalpels. Wouldn't that be a sight? And likewise, true Christians don't do what non-Christians do. Who you are determines how you live, how you do life. Who you are determines what you do. Hopefully you're there by now. 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 4. We're going to focus in on what the Lord says about our identity, and He does it first by telling us who the identity of Christ is. It says, Coming to Christ, verse 4, Coming to Christ as to a living stone rejected indeed by men but chosen and precious in today's verses that we'll go over there's a few churchy type of words and some things that may not make make sense to you but hopefully together we can understand it coming to him as a living stone you see back in biblical days when they built buildings they would take these large rectangular square type shapes of stone And the builders would be building the walls and setting each one on top of the other in a particular fashion and a particular pattern. And if they got a stone, they were pulling from a big pile of stones to stack it up to make the walls of the buildings. And if they got a stone that didn't quite fit the mold for what they were trying to do and the agenda they had of building this building, if a stone looked different felt different, the texture of it wasn't right, it was a different type of rock that wasn't quite right, if the shape of it wasn't cut just the way they thought it should be, they would get rid of it, and they would toss it off to the side. It didn't fit the mold for what their agenda was. Jesus certainly did not fit the mold of the agenda of the religious leaders in his day. Jesus came as the one who was authoritative and is authoritative. He came as the one who forgives sins. He came as the only way to heaven. He came as the king who serves his people. He was the only one who had the right to require that we come to God his way. And that certainly did not fit the mold of the unbelievers, the disobedient, the prideful, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people we know of in Scripture that did not see Jesus as fitting the mold of what they thought an earthly king should be, a king that washes the feet of his servants. They didn't get that. They didn't understand it. They they were rebellious in their hearts. They were disobedient, and so they threw him away. They crucified him. But although he was thrown away by men, the word this morning tells us in verse 4, which we just read, that he was both chosen, Jesus was both chosen and precious to God. Now, look to verse 5, and here's where it gets really good and what it means something very special to you and me. Verse 5, it says, You also, look to your neighbor, poke him, and say, You also. Now, look to your other neighbor and say, You too. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's my paraphrase. You and I, if we believe in Christ and we're repentant of our sins, we are like Christ. You're like that living, rejected stone. Indeed, rejected by men. Church, if you are a Christian, you will be rejected and and thrown away by some people. There will be people that will look at you, and they'll do kind of one of those things where they turn their head sideways like a dog does when they're trying to figure out what it is that you, they don't understand what you're doing. They'll, that You will not make sense to many people. The things that you do and don't do, the things that you say and don't say, will not make sense to everybody. You, you will not fit the agenda of every crowd in life. You won't fit that particular mold of the agenda of what they're trying to do and what they want to do and the, the worldly cultural pattern of the way things go. You very well, you, not very well, you won't. You won't fit that mold. And there will be people, there will be groups as a Christian that will toss you aside. But it tells you that you are chosen and precious to God, like Christ. So if you're filling in blank, not the blanks, but if you're taking notes, God's children are chosen And precious. God's children are chosen and precious. Church, get this down in your soul. And and, and write this on your heart that you are chosen, if you are God's child, that you are chosen and precious to Him. And here's why this is so important is because if you get that, which I know that I really don't a lot of the times, if if we grasp that and we get that down in our spirit that we're chosen, and precious to God. Insecurity melts in the wake of that. Indecisiveness melts in the wake of that. Insecurity, unsure, not certain, body image issues, those things go away when you realize that you are chosen and precious of God. But what I'll also have you say is for a great purpose. God's children are chosen and precious for a great purpose. We're living stones. We're being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to or so that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And you say, Pastor Ben... What is a spiritual sacrifice? It was clear what that was in the Old Testament. It was an animal that would be slayed. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And animals would be sacrificed on altars. And now, Jesus being our perfect lamb, Jesus being our sacrifice, the Bible still tells us in the New Testament to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And there's many of them, but I'll give you a list of scriptures, and you can jot these down on the margin of your Bible or on the back of your bulletin. And here's some examples of what spiritual sacrifices are because who you are determines what you do. And if you're a Christian, spiritual sacrifices will be simply a part of the way that you roll. Here's some spiritual sacrifices. Romans 12.1 I beseech you, or I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. Now, we're not cutting our bodies and setting our bodies on an altar. That's why it says a living sacrifice. But our bodies, if we're to create categories, you can write Romans 12.1 and then in parentheses just put the word bodies. We're to offer our bodies as a sacrifice to God, meaning that whatever God says to do or don't do with these bodies, we do exactly and precisely just that. And it tells us there in Romans 12.1 that that is our reasonable service. It is not unreasonable for God to ask us to do and to not do certain things. And you ask why? Is because maybe perhaps that His body was butchered for us. So therefore, He has every right to ask us to live and to not live in certain ways. Our bodies are a living sacrifice. Ephesians 5, 2, going on to another one. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling aroma. So when we love each other, when we are, are actively letting, we're not like some dirty window, but when God's light shines and love shines into our lives and we just reflect that out everywhere, that is precious to God. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. It's a sacrifice of loving each other. Here's another one, Philippians 4:18. Paul's referencing financial support that he was giving, and he references, references to it as, an, again, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So my prayer always is when we're taking up our offering that we would be joyful givers. When we partake in all the little ministries that we have going on of being able to give, whether it's money or food or clothing or whatever it is, that we would do it joyfully. Those things are a sweet-smelling aroma an acceptable sacrifice. It's well-pleasing to God. It's a spiritual sacrifice. Here's another one, Hebrews 13:15. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. So if you were to write Hebrews 13:15, and then right next to it, you could just say something like verbal worship that the praise of God would be on your lips this holiday season as we interact with family, that we would have thankfulness coming out of our mouths for other people to hear that we're grateful to God. It's verbal worship. It's a sacrifice of praise. The next verse down, Hebrews 13, 16. The, The first one in verse 15 was very much towards God. This one is very outward, horizontally towards others. Hebrews 13, 16 says, But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifice, God is well pleased. So, good works and sharing, which I believe that God has changed our hearts to make us a body of believers that are good at that. Praise be unto God. That's a sacrifice that we do before God. It, who we are determines how we roll, who we, what we do, and how we do life. If we're a Christian, we will offer up spiritual sacrifices. And note that all of those things I just said are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's a very important piece because if it's not through Jesus Christ, you can offer your body, you can be loving, you can be giving of money and other resources that you have. You can even praise God and say words that would honor Him. And you can do good and share. But if it's not through Jesus Christ, the Bible says that our best righteousness, our best works are as filthy rags before God. So make sure that that's clear. No one is saved by those things. Those are simply the things that will happen when we are saved. They're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All the things I just said are summarized very well in Ephesians chapter two, verse ten, where it says, "For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works." So. When God saves us, it's not just so that we can look cute in church, and many of you do look very cute in church, even despite what I said of people looking old, ugly, and and weak last week. I feel bad about that. We are created for good works, not just to look a certain way, but we're created for good works. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. Who we are will determine how we roll and what we do in life. You, most of all of you know by now that I grew up on a farm and we always had, always had at least two farm dogs that were out that helped protect the barn from raccoons and things from the chickens and that kind of thing. And the first two dogs we had were uh, Golden Retrievers, Cowboy and Katie. Uh, great dogs. I love those dogs. And uh, and they were golden retrievers, and mo- like most of you know, golden retrievers are they're bred to be like hunting bird dogs, retrieving bird dogs for like duck hunters. When they shoot the duck, the duck goes down, the dog goes out and retrieves it for them. And these dogs were that way. You could throw a ball from sun up to sundown and those dogs would retrieve that ball they loved it and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about if you've ever thrown a dog thrown a dog thrown a ball <laughs> wouldn't that be a sight you know if you've thrown a ball for a dog that loves retrieving they just start shaking they're just so excited everything in them is made for bred for the blood coursing through their veins is made for it and, and golden retrievers are that way. They're, they're even bred so much so that they're made so that when they're carrying a ball or a bird, a hunting bird or something like that, that they're made so that their nasal passages, they can breathe easier while they're retrieving. They're made for it. That's what they're made for. After the dogs, the, the golden retrievers got older, we had, um, we had two Australian Cattle dogs. If you've ever been to a rodeo, you'll see a lot of cowboys and and livestock traders have with these livestock dogs. They're called cattle dogs, and these dogs are made to herd, and they're bred for it. They're even built structurally short, so they're made to go, and and when they're chasing and herding animals, they'll go up. I've seen this numerous times. Uh, these dogs will go up to a 2,000 pound bull or a 1,000 pound third bred horse, meaner than a snake, whatever, and they'll go up and bite this animal right on the heel to get them to go where you want them to go. They're made for it. And these dogs are built for it. They're structurally short so that, not a matter of if the animal will kick at them, but when the animal kicks at them, they kick right over them. And the dogs are just made for it. And you see these dogs, they'll just start shaking and the owner will let them go. And, and I had, We had two of these dogs and and no joke, I could have eight or ten horses out in the field, and, and this dog would just be shaking, just so excited, and then i let her go. And she would chase every single one of those horses, one by one, into the barn. And when she was actually taller than most of the other healers were, no kidding one time, she's chasing a horse, and this horse kicks low. Kicks her right between the eyes. Boom! <laughs> I thought, she's dead. I just better go get the shovel and bury right now. She's dead. You know what she did? She gets up, yelps a couple times, shakes off, and keeps chasing the horse. <laughs> she was just made for it. Wouldn't it be a shame if you had a golden retriever and you tied him to a fence post and you threw a ball when everything in them is made to chase the thing? Wouldn't it be a shame if you had a, a, an Australian cattle dog and you tied him to a fence post and a herd of 20 cattle go trotting by and they can't do anything about it? Wouldn't it be a shame if there were groups of believers who were made for good works? The, the very blood coursing through their veins is the holy blood of heaven. Jesus Christ has redeemed us, made us whole, made us new. And we, we just were like Christ, but we don't do what He did. Wouldn't that be a shame? We were made like Christ not just to be like Him, but to do what He did. Who you are determines how you roll and what you do now let's go to verse 6 First Peter chapter 2 verse 6 and here he quotes if you want to write this down if your Bible doesn't have the connection of where he's quoting this from you can write down Isaiah 28 16 because that's the verse he's getting ready to quote God is quoting himself when he's in this particular text this is therefore it is also contained in Scripture behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect precious and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame now there's some churchy christianese type words in there let's understand them when it says zion it's referencing jerusalem many times when it says zion it's it's referencing the city of jerusalem where jesus was crucified just outside of when it says cornerstone it's referencing jesus so we could read it like this, therefore it's also contained in Scripture, behold, I lay in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus just outside the city was where Jesus crucified, a chief cornerstone. And you say, What's a cornerstone? Well, back to our illustration that the scripture's using of a builder. A cornerstone was the stone at the bottom on the base at the corner. And similar to the way that cornerstones are, uh, maybe even some churches you'll see a cornerstone and there'll be an inscription on it of people that dedicated the building or something like that special. They still did the same thing, but cornerstones were even more special back then because what the builders would do is they would set the cornerstone and if the cornerstone was perfectly square, If it was a perfect 90-degree angle, if it was perfectly straight, if it matched up with the other... The cornerstones were foundational. It was was the way that you... If you had the cornerstones set just right... You could build the rest of the building and the rest of the building would just go up seamlessly. The two walls would come together and they'd just be a perfect match. It was how the builder judged everything. It was the the measure by which they measured the truth of how the walls needed to come together. If the builder was careless and he didn't build with with the cornerstone in place, the walls would come together like this. It wouldn't end up working properly. It was how they measured truth. Verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe... To you who believe in the cornerstone, to you who who believe in the person by which we measure truth, which is Jesus Christ. Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. Undoubtedly, a builder would think that the cornerstone was precious. It was the guiding force of all of their work. If they paid attention and they, they reverenced what it is that the cornerstone meant and represented and what it was. Moving on, it says, but to those who are disobedient, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So, because Jesus didn't fit the mold that they expected, he did not come riding in prideful victory, he came humbly serving he did not come riding in causing a political ruckus like many of them thought they would and thought he should be doing he came peaceably because he didn't come teaching outward righteousness but he was and is the perfect image of righteousness because he didn't look like the king and god they wanted they threw him aside they threw the stone off to the side and and away He didn't fit their agenda. And therefore, the Pharisees accused him, the temple guards punched him, the soldiers beat him, the passerby spit on him, the executioners nailed him to the cross. And sometimes, I wonder, the unbelievers, the disobedient... And, and be clear, these are not people that were just duped and it's like all poor people that should have known, been in the loop of what was going on and they were just misinformed. No, they were disobedient and wicked. There's no mistake about that in scripture whatsoever. If you know your Bible, you know that for sure. And I wonder sometimes about those people. After they threw the rock aside, they threw the living stone aside. It was rejected indeed by men, but chosen and precious to God. They threw Jesus away. They bury him in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And for a couple days, they're probably feeling pretty good about themselves. They got rid of Jesus. He's no longer an issue. He's no longer has this great following. He's no longer going around in in throngs of people that used to be in the temple where the Pharisees were. They're they're no longer following Jesus because we killed Him. We got rid of Him. We we cast Him aside. I wonder what it was like for those people three, four, five, six, seven, some odd days later. And they start hearing rumors. That, That tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that that Jesus who was called the Christ was buried in, it's empty now. We hear these rumors of Jesus is alive. We hear rumors that, we can, that people can still see the marks on His hands and on His feet. But He's a living, walking, breathing man that was originally dead on the cross. We hear that this Jesus is powerful. He can walk through walls. He, he's not like other people. He's risen and He's powerful. I wonder, I'll bet those people the Pharisees, the disobedient, the temple guards, the soldiers, the passerbys that spit on him, the executioners, I bet those people had kind of a, this is really bad, oh no. When the Bible says that they stumbled over Jesus, I think that just perhaps when the people realized that the Jesus whom they had crucified now no longer remained in an empty tomb, they started to stumble over Jesus and the person that they had executed, the person that they had ignored because of their disobedience had now become their judge. And I'm sure there was kind of an old snot moment when they realized what they had done, when they realized that they did not get away with their wickedness. The cornerstone, the stone that they had thrown aside had become the cornerstone. The one by which truth is measured. So if you're taking notes, here's the statement that I'll make, which I believe has already been made clear. Unbelievers prove who they are through their actions. Again, going back to who we are, determining how we roll and how we live and what we do. The Pharisees made it clear that they were unbelievers and disobedient in their hearts when they crucified Jesus. When they threw Him aside. People today make it clear when they disregard what it is that Jesus says. Who you are will determine what you do and how you roll. The people that would have read the book of First Peter for the first time, the persecuted Christians who are struggling with the issue of identity and, and all these people that they thought were believers are, are come to find out or not because they, they disowned Christ just to save their own skin. And, and I'm sure that those people also had a moment where they realized Someday Jesus is going to come back. And for those people who denied Christ, should Christ come back in their lifetime, they're going to have an oh-no moment. The the rock that they threw aside when it was convenient will become a stumbling block to them. 1 John 1, verses 5-7 through say it incredibly clear. It says, This is the message which we have heard from Him, from Jesus, and declare to you, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say, this is so clear church, just hear the Word of God this morning. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, if you say that you're a Christian New Covenant community church, but you walk in darkness, and you commit willful sin, notice it's a walking in darkness, not a stumbling down and falling back into darkness that we've been brought out of, but we actively walk in darkness. It says, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. So make the distinction, church. I want us to make sure we understand this clearly. There is a difference, church, between the righteous struggler and the willful sinner. Which is why it says those that say they have fellowship with Him but walk in darkness. Walking is an active thing. It's not a stumbling on accident. It's a willful walking in disobedience. If they say that they have fellowship with Him, they lie and do not practice the truth. It's the willful sinner, the person who knows what God's Word says but chooses to do something else. You cannot say that you have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, at least to be honest. And there have been times I've had in previous ministry circumstances where people will say, I am a willful sinner. I am walking in darkness. That is what I am. But don't muddy the water for the rest of the true believers who are trying to reach the community for the sake of Christ because it's the people that say they have fellowship with Christ but they don't obey Him in anything. To give Christians a terrible name. And it's it's the great struggle. You're being used, if if that's you, if you're a willful sinner, but you say that you have fellowship with Christ, you, you are the handiwork of the devil. Because you are the thing that Christians who are trying to reflect light in a dark and broken world, and you're giving Christians a terrible, terrible name. Be honest. If you're going to be a Christian, do what he said. If you're going to follow Christ, obey Him. Give yourself to spiritual sacrifices. If not, then just don't. And and live the way that you want to live. But be honest. Don't, Don't play both sides of the fence. Be honest. And it's my great prayer. I hope that you hear my heart and not trying to be legalistic or strict or harsh. God is light. It's who He is. Come to Him. I don't want us to read over this and think that, oh, praise God that we're a precious stone, precious and chosen. We've been thrown away by men. And thank God. No, it doesn't end there. Because you and I have the keys. You and I understand it. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior... We know the difference, and, and, and the people that are in the dark, stumbling, deceived, disobedient, and, and stumbling over the person of Christ, they, they disregard what Jesus says, but it, He is their judge. You and I have the answers for them that we graciously and humbly and lovingly share with them. True story. I don't know how many years ago this was, but this is a true story. Uh, a man was found behind a restaurant one day, beaten badly and unconscious. And the people that found him call the ambulance, as any of us would do, and, uh, and he was almost beaten to death. And in the ambulance, they, he starts to come to while he's in the ambulance. They take him to hospital, they get him back on track, they revive him and whatnot, and, and he, he's saved. His physical life is saved, and he's, he's no longer dying. And, uh, but the people on the ambulance as he's coming to are trying to get this man's name. And he doesn't have any memory. His head was beaten badly, and this man has some memory disorder that was very severe, very likely brought on by the beating that he had just endured. He had no money, no wallet, no keys, no cell phone. There was nothing on his person except for the clothes that were on his back, and he couldn't remember anything. His very first memory was coming to in the ambulance. And, and it was a, they tried to figure out who this man was. They posted in the local paper. He was on TV shows. Famous people with huge, famous television shows had them on their show to try and find. They put postings out on social media. They even hired a private investigator. To, it was their sole job to find this man's family, what his name was, who he was connected with. They couldn't find anything about this man. He was totally stumbling around in life, had no idea who he was, his purpose, or anything. How cruel would it be if somebody who who knew this man and around that same restaurant they find a wallet and, and they've got his identity in their hand? How cruel would somebody have to be to not find that man and give it to him, to show him who he is? Church, how cruel would we have to be in a world that stumbles, in a world of darkness, in a world of deception for you and I to know the truth and not to be burdened by the people that stumble over Jesus? Because daily, Jesus doesn't fit the agenda of many people. And like the builder, they just take the rock and throw it off to the side because they they may like most of what they see about the rock, but if there's a couple little pieces about the rock that doesn't fit the agenda of the wall that they're building in life, they'll just throw them aside. And people today do the exact same thing. But you and I have the truth to know that we can go alongside people and say, that Jesus that you're rejecting... That's not a stone you want to throw away. You want to make Him the cornerstone. If you make Him the cornerstone, yeah, there might be some difficulties in building the wall, but the wall will come out straight. You will be saved when you come to Jesus. You will know Him as Savior and Lord. He'll be the, he'll be the thing. His Word will be the thing by which you measure all truth. When you hear crazy things in the culture, you'll go here and you're like, okay, now I understand the truth. Let us be a people church in the same way that God has compelled our hearts as New Covenant Community Church to be a giving church and to care about kids that we don't know the names of around the other side of the world. Let's ask God to change our hearts in the same way for the people that are in Johnstown, in Utica, in Columbus, and all around us in our workspaces Let us tell the world that the stone they're throwing away is the chief cornerstone that will bring great blessing and peace in their life and ultimately salvation in eternity. Because the rest of the world, the majority of the world, church, is in darkness and they're stumbling. Last verse I'll go to, and Brianna, if you would come now, I would ask. Verse 9, look at verse 9. It says, but you, look to your neighbor and say, but you. Look to your other neighbor and say, but you, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? Why would God make a people for himself like that? That or so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Church, that's who we are. And that is a glorious truth. It is, it is the reason that we are the way that we are. And church, we must be about teaching that truth to our children, We must be about the business of keeping each other accountable in that truth together. We must be about showing the world, the lost, dark, dying world, that truth. That they can go from somebody who is deceived and stumbling, throwing aside the stone which the builders rejected, and showing them that the stone which you live by, the chief cornerstone, offers freedom. And you'll be chosen, loyal, holy, and special. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, you're so worthy. You're so worthy of our praise, of our devotion, of our love. And we've seen it clear in Your Word this morning, Lord, that that You do require of us, of our lives, You You call us to lay ourselves aside, to daily walk for You, to pick up our cross daily, to deny ourselves daily, and to pick up our cross, to pick up our Christian walk, and to follow You. You call us to it. But God, You did not call us to that out of turn, Unrightly, for while we were still sinners, You died for us. So God, how could we dare to give You anything less than our all? Anything less than our total obedience? Our total willful action to follow You? Not to be a willful willful sinner, but to be like Peter, that when he sinned against You in the courtyard, when he denounced who You were and said that he did not know who You were, that he went out of that courtyard and he wept bitterly. God, let us be a righteous struggler that when we fall, we get, down, we get back up and say, Lord, forgive us. Thank You for the cross, Jesus, that You've forgiven what we've done, that You've paid the penalty that I deserved. Make us righteous strugglers, I pray, God. Help us to love You and to know You. Thank You, God, that You've redeemed a people that never deserved it, never earned it. But Your offer of salvation extends to us. If we don't know that that's clear with you, Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict anyone in this room who that is not true for. And that they would be reminded of your love, your grace, your mercy, your compassion. And that we would come to you not perfect. Not at all perfect. But made righteous because of you. And struggling in our righteousness and laying our sin at the foot of your cross because you're the one who we need forgiveness from. We love you, Jesus. In Christ's name. Everybody said? Amen. Let's sing and respond to the Lord.